Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for May 2019. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Pediatric bipolar disorder has been the subject of debate, particularly with regard to whether its phenotype differs from that of bipolar disorder in adults and whether the true prevalence of the disorder varies internationally. A meta-analysis from 2011 found that the prevalence of pediatric bipolar disorder in the community was 1.8% and that the rates did not vary by location. Since 2011, eight more studies reporting on the epidemiologic prevalence of pediatric bipolar disorder have been published, and the number of youth represented has more than tripled. Meta-analytic techniques have also improved, and researchers can better capture the variability in the way that bipolar disorder is assessed and reported. For example, The 2011 meta-analysis combined rates of bipolar 1 with rates of undifferentiated bipolar 1 and 2 and rates of bipolar spectrum disorders. The resulting prevalence of 1.8% is likely an overestimate for bipolar 1 but an underestimate for the bipolar spectrum. In this updated analysis, Van Meter and colleagues account for the fact that some papers in previous research included multiple subtypes of bipolar disorder. They also estimate the rates for bipolar 1, undifferentiated bipolar 1 and 2, and the bipolar spectrum separately. They find that the prevalence of bipolar 1 in youth is 0.6%, and the prevalence of bipolar spectrum disorders is 3.9%. Factors that influence prevalence include sample age, the use of broad diagnostic criteria, and reporting lifetime rates. Rates are consistent internationally, but large studies, and those published most recently, are biased towards lower rates, probably due to the use of less sensitive diagnostic methods that are likely to misdiagnose bipolar disorder. The authors recommend that future epidemiologic studies should use consistent definitions and evaluation methods, not only because it would facilitate more reliable estimates from future meta-analyses, but also because it will provide clearer answers to questions of risk and resilience, enabling more informed efforts to ameliorate the significant consequences of this illness. Those who are early in the course of treatment for schizophrenia often lack insight into the relapsing nature of their illness, and once symptoms have remitted, subsequently discontinue their medications. This can have devastating personal, social, and health consequences. Psychiatrists have traditionally reserved the use of long-acting injectable antipsychotics for those patients who prove to be non-adherent with their prescribed medication regimen. Data would suggest that it is not a matter of if a patient with early schizophrenia will become at least partially not adherent, but when. In this study, supported by Otsuka and Lundbeck, the authors examined whether the use of long-acting antipsychotic medications offered earlier in the course of treatment would be acceptable to patients. 
In this preliminary analysis of data from a two-year prospective cluster-randomized study of 489 patients from 39 U.S. centers with first episode or early phase schizophrenia, the authors found 91% of the consented patients were willing to accept at least one injection, suggesting that this may represent a novel and feasible approach for treating early phase schizophrenia. Only 14% had declined consent because of the role of long-acting medications. Based on these results, the authors conclude that a very strong case can currently be made for more frequent consideration of long-acting injectable antipsychotic use early in the course of schizophrenia treatment. Despite improved recognition and diagnosis of later-life depression, adherence to antidepressant medication in older depressed individuals remains low. In order to best prevent depression relapse and reduce recurrence, an understanding of the factors associated with continued maintenance treatment is needed. In this study sponsored by VA Health Services Research and Development, the authors compared the factors associated with antidepressant not adherence during the acute treatment phase, the first four months, and maintenance treatment phase, across 12 months, for older veterans with depression. Among 276 older veterans with depression who were prescribed a new antidepressant by a primary care provider or psychiatrist, they found that nearly a third of veterans were not adherent at both 4- and 12-month follow-up. In adjusted analyses, African-American race, not being married, greater medical comorbidity, functional impairment, and self-reported side effects predicted non-adherence at both time points. Depression or anxiety severity did not predict antidepressant adherence at either time point. This study suggests that identifying and engaging older veterans at higher risk of non-adherence early in treatment can ultimately help both achieve remission and reduce relapse and recurrence. Metabolic diseases such as obesity and some cardiovascular diseases, including dyslipidemia, represent a major health issue in psychiatry. Psychotropic medications such as second-generation antipsychotics, commonly known as SGAs, can increase the risk of metabolic disorders. A recent study conducted in adult patients being prescribed SGAs or other psychotropics that could induce metabolic disturbances showed that changes in lipid levels of 5% or more during the first month of treatment could predict important modifications of lipid levels and development of dyslipidemia in the longer term. In the present study, funded in part by the Swiss National Research Foundation, the authors examined early changes of lipid levels in 53 adolescent patients receiving SGAs. During the first month of treatment, half the adolescents had an early increase of total cholesterol levels by 5% or more, and one-third developed new-onset hypercholesterolemia during the first year of treatment. Hypercholesterolemia developed more frequently in females and in patients with an early increase of total cholesterol of 5% or more. This study underlines the importance of metabolic monitoring after the introduction of SGAs in young patients who are particularly susceptible to adverse metabolic effects. 
The authors conclude that, considering the major impact of dyslipidemia on morbidity and mortality, it is critical that healthcare professionals prospectively monitor and control lipid levels in adolescents after SGAs are prescribed. High rates of childhood trauma and adult suicidality have been reported in patients with schizophrenia. This study sought to explore mediators between childhood trauma and suicidality, which would help in determining therapeutic approaches. The study, with support from Korean institutions, included 314 adult patients with early psychosis that were recruited as part of a prospective naturalistic observational cohort study started in December 2014 in Korea. The authors collected data on childhood trauma, suicidal ideation, and attempts, depression, empathy, psychopathology, and rumination. A total of 90.1% of the participants experienced at least one childhood traumatic event. The rates of recent suicidal ideation and suicide attempts were 32% and 10%, respectively. Independent predictors of recent suicidal ideation were depression, negative schema, and rumination. Furthermore, negative schema and rumination played partial or full mediating roles in the relationship between childhood trauma and recent suicidal ideation. These findings highlight the importance of performing careful evaluations of childhood trauma and suicidality and of developing effective strategies to reduce mediating factors that may be amenable to psychosocial approaches. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Sleep disturbances are a feature of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and an adverse event of methylphenidate treatment. In this meta-analysis of methylphenidate-associated sleep problems, sponsored by Highland Therapeutics, the authors examined data from 35 randomized blinded clinical trials. These studies comprised 3,079 drug-exposed and 2,606 placebo-treated patients. The authors found that methylphenidate increased the risk for insomnia, initial insomnia, middle insomnia, combined insomnia, and sleep disorder. They also found significant differences among drugs in the risk for sleep problems. The authors also demonstrated that one must be cautious when comparing the relative risk for sleep problems between two studies. The magnitude of the relative risk statistic is constrained by the rate of sleep problems in the placebo group. So if two studies differ substantially in their rates of placebo-related sleep problems, their relative risks cannot be compared. Clinicians should systematically explore sleep issues before starting a treatment with methylphenidate and at each follow-up visit. These findings highlight that rather than querying non-specifically for sleep problems, clinicians should specifically explore initial, middle, and combined insomnia, as well as sleep quality and the restorative value of sleep. These issues can be explored with simple unstructured questions or with user-friendly questionnaires. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Intravenous ketamine has rapid and robust antidepressant effects. 
However, accessibility of the intravenous route often limits its use. Numerous alternative routes of administration are being investigated. Of these, oral ketamine is particularly appealing for its ease of use with the potential for high accessibility. In the current systematic review, the authors sought to determine the efficacy, safety, tolerability, and dose range of oral ketamine for bipolar and unipolar depression. A total of 13 published articles assessing oral ketamine for depression were identified, two of which were proof-of-concept, randomized controlled trials, or RCTs. One was a prospective open-label trial, five were retrospective chart reviews, and five were case reports. Both RCTs demonstrated antidepressant efficacy with good tolerability. However, significant changes in depressive symptom severity were observed only after two to six weeks of treatment. Both RCTs had high risk for bias due to inadequate intent-to-treat analysis and adverse effect monitoring. Rapid antidepressant effects, anti-suicide effects, and efficacy in treatment-resistant depression were reported only in retrospective studies. Dosages and frequency of administration were variable, ranging from 0.5 to 7 milligrams per kilogram three times daily to once monthly, with most studies including dosing at 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram every 1 to 3 days. No clinically significant adverse effects were reported. In sum, a small number of clinical studies have assessed the antidepressant effects of oral ketamine. Initial results suggest that oral ketamine has significant antidepressant effects with good overall tolerability. However, antidepressant effects are not as rapid as with intravenous ketamine. The authors conclude that anti-suicide effects and efficacy in treatment-resistant depression have yet to be demonstrated and additional well-designed RCTs are warranted. There is strong evidence of specific developmental vulnerabilities for mental disorders in childhood and adolescence, given that a sizable proportion of lifetime mental disorders originate during this period of life. This article reports on all incidences, newly diagnosed individuals, of registered mental disorders in a complete nationwide birth cohort from Denmark. The study was made possible due to the collection of data by the Danish Civil Registry. Individuals were followed from birth through childhood and adolescence until 18 years of age. By adolescence, incidences of any mental disorder, substance use disorders, depression and anxiety disorders, increased substantially. Sex effects were apparent with higher incidence rates for depression, anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and eating disorders in females, and a male preponderance for substance use disorders, autism spectrum disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, conduct disorders, and tick disorders. The cumulative incidence rates of any registered mental disorder at age 18 was 11% in this cohort. Sizable number of risk factors were identified, reflecting the detrimental effects of childhood adversities on the development of mental disorders in youth. 
The findings of the diverse developmental patterns of various mental disorders throughout childhood and adolescence, and the sizable amount of disorders at the time of transition into adulthood, underscore the fact that childhood and adolescence are highly vulnerable periods for the development of mental disorders. Although the sedative and extrapyramidal side effects associated with first-generation antipsychotics are perhaps better known, some second-generation antipsychotics also carry a risk of excessive sedation or akathisia. In this Academic Highlights article with support from Otsuka and Lundbeck, four experts on depression take a closer look at activation and sedation effects of atypical antipsychotics in patients with major depressive disorder. They examine the likelihood of each agent to cause akathisia and troublesome sedation, as well as the impact of these effects on patient functioning, quality of life, and treatment adherence. They also consider the question of whether leveraging activation and sedation effects to address acute symptoms is ever advisable. This Academic Highlights is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Which pharmacologic treatment is most likely to help your patient with PTSD? Only two medications are FDA-approved for this condition, although a number of others are in current clinical use. This recent ASCP Corner article reviews commonly used treatments for PTSD and summarizes the evidence for each. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings for May on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.